Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side in the wee hours of March 5th, 2022. And amid all of the relentless horror that we are witnessing in Ukraine, I continue to be utterly appalled by the mounting examples of the extremely sinister phenomenon of fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. And the latest example really betrays the utter cynicism of Putin's propaganda and is also a case study in how history is being weaponized in this conflict. So just to recap, as I uh, blogged on my website, countervortex.org, two days ago, Russia announced on March 1st that it intends to host an international anti-fascist conference with hideous irony on the same day that its forces bombarded a Holocaust memorial site in Kyiv. Russia struck the Babi Yar Holocaust Memorial in a raid apparently targeting a nearby television tower, killing five people. The memorial marks the site of the murder of 33,700 Jews by the Nazis in Kyiv in September 1941. Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's first Jewish president, last year attended a ceremony for the opening of a synagogue at the site. He responded to the missile attack on the monument by tweeting, quote, To the world, what is the point of saying never again for 80 years if the world stays silent when a bomb drops on the site of Babi Yar? History repeating. End quote. The surreal announcement of the anti-fascist conference came from Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, who said that Moscow will hold the CONFAB in August in conjunction with an arms expo sponsored by his ministry, dubbed the Army 2022 International Military Technical Forum. Shoigu said the conference aims to, quote, unite the efforts of the international community in the fight against the ideology of Nazism and neo-Nazism in any form of its expression in the modern world, end quote. Among the countries that have been invited to attend the CONFAB, according to the report in the Russian state media outlet RT, are China, accused of genocide in Xinjiang, India, now emulating China's mass detention policies directed at Muslims in particular, Pakistan, a fast consolidating police state, Saudi Arabia, similarly moving toward a mass detention state, mostly where dissidents are concerned, the United Arab Emirates, another burgeoning police state, Azerbaijan, accused of war crimes during last year's war with Armenia, Uzbekistan, a long-entrenched dictatorship, and Ethiopia, accused of crimes against humanity in the internal Tigray War. You simply can't make this stuff up. Putin is attempting to consolidate a fascist bloc 
in the name of anti-fascism. And I'm afraid that progressives around the world, and especially in the West, are going to fall for it because it superficially sounds good. Despite this lineup of dictatorial and genocidal regimes that are going to be participating in this confab, and despite the fact that it is Putin who is now acting like the damn Nazis. Now, I am going to recall that in my uh, podcast of summer 2019, commemorating the tragic end of the Spanish Civil War in 1939, I had pointed out that for Putin, Syria was a test war, very much like Spain was a test war for Hitler. And just like Hitler's warplanes destroyed Guernica in 1937, Putin's warplanes destroyed Aleppo in 2016. And my listeners will recall that I stated in that podcast that just as the Spanish War presaged a far greater war, World War II, which began later that same year, 1939, that the Syrian war could also presage a far greater war, because Putin, like Hitler, was allowed to get away with it, and it set a precedent. And here we are. We could well be at the brink of a new world war that could well escalate to the unthinkable. And as I ranted last week, if Syria was Putin's Spain, then Crimea and Donbass were his Sudetenland, and now he's making a grab for all of Ukraine, just as Hitler did in Czechoslovakia after the seizure of the Sudetenland. I don't see how you can fail to grasp the parallel. Then you have the totalizing police state, which is rapidly unfolding within Russia, with human rights groups and independent media and civil society in general being shut down by the government, and courageous anti-war protesters being swept off the streets by the thousands, while Putin says he's going to denazify Ukraine. And here's where we really have to examine the history of Ukraine over the past century and a half, and the distortions and exploitation of this history in the service of Putin's war propaganda. Because a lot of this effort to, you know, tar all Ukrainians as Nazis and to tar any expression of Ukrainian nationalism as Nazism hinges on the career of Stefan Bandera, the Ukrainian nationalist who intermittently collaborated with the Nazis in the Second World War. And it is true that some Ukrainian nationalists today view Bandera as a hero, about which we'll have more to say later. I want to begin this review of the history by discussing another tremendously important figure who fought the Russians in Ukraine a generation earlier and is nearly forgotten by all sides in the current propaganda war. Nestor Makhno, the great Ukrainian anarchist leader of the period of the Russian Revolution. I feel like I'm resurrecting nearly forgotten history here, but um, I've been hitting the books over the past week in preparation for this podcast, so let me dive right in. Nestor Makhno was born in Juliaipol, 
if I'm pronouncing it correctly, in the southeast of Ukraine, immediately to the north of Mariupol, the coastal city on the Sea of Azov, which is at this moment under siege by the invading Russian forces. And Makhno uh, began his career in the 1890s as a uh, social bandit, so to speak, very much in the style of Pancho Villa in northern Mexico in the same period, attacking the estates of the landed aristocracy and the local gendarmes and redistributing expropriated goods to the peasants and the poor from whose ranks Makhno himself had emerged. He did nine years in a Russian prison for such activities. And he was released after the um, February Revolution of 1917, when the bourgeois Democrat Alexander Kerensky came to power. He returned to Juliaipol and uh, resumed his anarchist activities, organizing the workers and the peasants, but also engaging in sort of uh, guerrilla Cossack tactics. His horsemen would sweep across the steppes and descend on the plantations and burn them down and then disappear into the plains. And like Pancho Villa during the same period, he requisitioned freight trains to move his troops, and he begins to um, establish an autonomous zone on explicitly anarchist lines. He had been uh, actually radicalized during his period in prison, where he was you know, schmoozing with other imprisoned anarchists and became more um, ideological. And eventually, uh, his autonomous zone began to cover, uh, you know, much of um, southeastern Ukraine, centered around Juliaipol, a utopian experiment, very much akin to what um, Emiliano Zapata was doing in uh, Morelos in south central Mexico, again during precisely the same period, and having some of the same contradictions, because both of these movements, both the Maknovistas in Ukraine and the Zapatistas in Morelos were very egalitarian and all about social leveling, but they also definitely, you know, were led by strongmen. Makhno was sort of an anarchist Cossack, just as Emiliano Zapata was the Caudillo of the South. Still a very inspiring episode. And then Things began to get complicated. Ukraine declared independence when the Bolsheviks took power in the October Revolution of 1917. But almost immediately, workers and cities and towns in the East, especially Kharkiv, rose in support of the Bolsheviks at the same time that an independent Ukrainian state was being declared in Kyiv. So interestingly, it's sort of the same geographical division that we have today, that you sort of see today, where the heartland of Ukrainian nationalism is around Kyiv in the center of the country. And then you've got elements in the East who are more sympathetic to the reigning power in Russia. And in 1918, the Bolsheviks invaded, the nascent Red Army invaded Ukraine in support of these elements in the East that had risen in their support. Here's where we witness Vladimir Lenin in power behaving somewhat differently from the more idealistic Lenin who spoke in support of Ukrainian independence before October 1917, 
once in power, Lenin's, you know, idealistic talk about self-determination for Ukraine was put aside. And getting it under control was deemed a matter of um, criticality to the survival of the uh, new Bolshevik state, which was still under siege. In response to the Bolshevik invasion of Ukraine, the uh, declared independent government of Ukraine invited in German and Austro-Hungarian troops to defend against the Bolsheviks. And this precipitated an internal split within the independent government between the more reactionary elements that welcomed the Germans and the Austrians around Pavlo Skoropadsky and the somewhat more progressive or at least more Ukrainian nationalist elements around Simon Petlora, who rejected the Pact with the Central Powers. And Skoropadsky appeared to have more of a base of support among the landed aristocracy and Petlora more among the urban bourgeoisie. And then it gets more complicated still. The ultra-reactionary white Russians under General Anton Denikin and later his successor, Pyotr Rangel, who basically wanted to restore the czarist order without the czar, after being driven from North Russia by the Bolsheviks, took refuge with the Don Cossacks in South Russia and Southeast Ukraine. And Makhno fought all of them. And for a while in 1918, it was actually a five-way war. You had the Reds, then you had the Whites, then you had the Central Powers and their collaborationist forces around Skoropadsky, then you had the Ukrainian nationalists around Petlora, and then you had the anarchists around Makhno. And Makhno at this time forms the uh, Revolutionary Insurgent Army of Ukraine, organizing his followers into what had previously been kind of a, uh, you know, raggedy, irregular force into a more organized and disciplined army, which fought back successive attempts to take his territory, first by the Central Powers, particularly the Austrians, and then later the Nationalists, Petlora's people, from the West, and then by the Whites from the East, so defending his territory from invading forces on both sides. Now, it should be said that during this period, all of these five contending forces participated in pogroms, in organized attacks and acts of ethnic cleansing against the Jewish population of Ukraine, including Makhno's forces. Now, the sources which are more sympathetic to Makhno, particularly the writings of the great anarchist historian Paul Average, say that um, he disciplined his troops who participated in pogroms, severely punished them, in fact, whereas other historians say that uh, Makhno at least implicitly encouraged pogroms with his um, anti-Semitic rhetoric about how the Jews were all merchants and middlemen, the usual propaganda. And indeed, many of the Jews were merchants and middlemen because their right to own land had been periodically denied under the czars. And uh, it also has to be said that Makhno's troops appear to have carried out reprisals against ethnic Germans in Ukraine. But without a doubt, it was the whites under Denikin that most aggressively carried out pogroms. And seemingly under the 
direction and leadership of the white army and not in spite of the leadership as might have been the case with the others, the other four contending forces, Skoropadsky, Petlora, the Bolsheviks, and the Makhnovists. But eventually the Bolsheviks made a pact with Makhno to fight the whites. And his revolutionary insurgent army of Ukraine was at least officially incorporated into the Bolshevik Red Army, although it continued to, in fact, have autonomy. The Makhnovist dealt a um, shattering defeat to the whites at the Battle of Paragonovka in September 1919, which really broke their power in Ukraine and southern Russia. So Makhno was really critical to defeating the white army and depriving them of Ukraine and southern Russia, and the Don Basin in particular, as a territory from which to launch attacks on the Reds. And Makhno, the anarchist, was actually instrumental in the survival of the Soviet state. But after the whites had been defeated, Makhno resisted orders from Trotsky and Lenin to surrender the autonomy of his revolutionary insurgent army of Ukraine. And in November 1920, the Bolsheviks launched a military campaign against the Makhnovists. And finally, after many months of siege warfare and a closing circle around Juliaipol, in August 1921, Makhno fled across the Romanian border, never to return to his native land. And this is a story that we have seen over and over and over again. Just at this very same time, the Zapatistas and Villistas in Mexico were used by the forces of Venustiano Carranza and his successors to defeat the Federales and then were crushed. And the Carranzistas went on to um, establish the Mexican state. Then between uh, 1936 and 1939, the Spanish anarchists around the CNT-5, particularly in Catalonia, were used by the Republican government in an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to defeat Franco's fascists before being crushed by the Republican government of the Popular Front even before Franco took over. And you can see the same pattern again just uh, over the past couple of years in Syria where the United States used the Rojava Kurds to fight ISIS and then betrayed them to Turkish aggression on their territory. The same pattern over and over again. Okay, so in exile, Makhno eventually settled in Paris, where he did some writing and agitation against the tyranny then being imposed in his homeland, but uh, he was increasingly debilitated by alcoholism, and he died in 1934. Now, by this time, Ukraine was descending into a very, very dark and grim period in its history. The so-called Holodomor, or extermination by hunger. Now, historians argue about how many died in the early 1930s in Ukraine, with the figures ranging between 3 and 10 million. Historians also argue about to what extent it was an intentional genocide, 
with Soviet commissars confiscating the grain from the so-called kulaks, the more prosperous peasants who were the ostensible targets of the grain confiscation program, and to what extent the famine had to do with mismanagement of the forced collectivization of agriculture, which was then underway, or even to natural causes. Not, as some of the uninformed revisionists claim, a drought, but on the contrary, a fungal infestation of the wheat due to too much rain in 1932, 1933. So I'm not going to, uh, you know, weigh in on any of these questions because I'm not a professional historian and I have not studied this period intimately and I'm aware of all of the contestation and controversy about it. That said, it is clear that the confiscation of the grain at least contributed to the famine and was concomitant with a crackdown on Ukrainian language and cultural rights at the same time under Joseph Stalin. And this is the context in which you have the emergence in the immediate following period, early to mid-1930s, of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, OUN, a small underground clandestine movement which uh, begins to launch sporadic armed attacks on the Soviet authorities. Now, by the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the OUN had um, become factionalized, and the most significant faction, the faction which we're going to discuss, was the OUNB, named for its leader, Stefan Bandera. And in June 1941, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, and their troops arrived in Ukraine, Bandera and the OUNB pledged to collaborate with them, but also declared an independent Ukrainian republic, which they thought that the Nazis could tolerate in the style of the independent Slovakia, which they had carved out of Czechoslovakia, or the independent you know, Nazi satellite state in Croatia, which had been similarly carved out of Yugoslavia or the Vichy government in France. But instead, the Nazis didn't go for it. They ordered Bandera to disband the Ukrainian Republic, which he had declared, and to submit to their total authority, which he refused to do. And the very next month, that is to say July 1941, he was arrested by the Nazis and taken to Berlin along with the other top leadership of the OUNB. In 1942, January 1942, Bandera was transferred to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp in Germany, which had been particularly established to hold political prisoners. But his um, followers on the ground in Ukraine continued to collaborate with the Nazis as a kind of an irregular force to fight the Soviets. The Nazis released Bandera in 1944 when they were in retreat, apparently hoping that his popularity among the Ukrainians might help them to stem the Soviet advance. But, um, of course, it did not work, and by the end of 1944, all of Ukraine was back in Soviet hands. 
Bandera fled with the retreating German troops and um, settled in Munich, where he spent the rest of his days. And there were rumors, at least, that he uh, continued to collaborate with the, um, the BND, the West German Intelligence Agency. In 1959, he would be assassinated in Munich, almost certainly on the orders of the KGB. Now, it has to be said that there were also other Ukrainian collaborationist forces during the war. At the massacre at Babi Yar, after the Nazis took Kiev in September of 1941, it was the Nazis who actually did the killing, but it was local Ukrainian forces who had gone over to them, local Ukrainian authorities who had gone over to the Nazis, who actually uh, helped round up the Jews in the city and turned them over to be massacred. There was also in the uh, in the west of Ukraine a Galician SS division which was formed, but today it is only the most extremist elements in Ukraine that glorify, for instance, the Galician SS division and the other collaborationist forces. On the contrary, there is a memorial to Babayar in Kiev, which was bombed by Putin's missiles and damaged or destroyed, possibly as collateral damage in a strike on a television tower, or perhaps intentionally targeted. And in contrast, there actually is something of a, uh, you know, personality cult around Bandera today in Ukraine, which is, you know, more mainstream, but we'll talk about that later. It should also be pointed out that the Soviet force which was fighting the Nazis was not the Russian army. It was the Red Army. It was not the Army of Russia. It was the Army of the USSR. And it included not only Russians, but Ukrainians and Kazakhs and Uzbeks and so on. And while the Russians suffered terribly in the Second World War, so did the Ukrainians, with their cities occupied and besieged and brutally fought over, changing hands repeatedly in some cases, and many Ukrainians were deported as slave labor to German factories and arms plants by the Nazis, as so-called Ostarbeiters, or workers from the East. And during the period that Ukraine was occupied, there were also Soviet partisan groups that were waging guerrilla warfare, who were made up of Ukrainians. And additionally, there was a Ukrainian insurgent army which was formed, a Ukrainian nationalist formation which resisted both the Nazis and then later the Soviets as well when they reconsolidated power. It didn't last very long. The Ukrainian insurgent army were like rival Ukrainian nationalists who far from collaborating with the Nazis, resisted them and then continued very briefly to um, resist the Soviets. But the Soviet dictatorship was reconsolidated after the war, and uh, things were certainly better than in the Stalin years, but that's not saying much. Things continued to be pretty bad, and Ukrainian culture and language were at least discouraged. And this continued right on up to... uh, the very final years of the Soviet Union. I'm just going to close by uh, 
invoking the name of um, the dissident Ukrainian poet Vasil Stus, who was imprisoned for 13 years for his protest for academic freedom, and finally died during a hunger strike while he was interned in a forced labor camp in 1985. Not 1935, when Stalin was in power, but 1985, when Gorbachev was already in power. That's how bad things continued to be. Okay, so after the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine became an independent country in 1991, there was a uh, about a generation of um, free flowering of Ukrainian culture, with the country pursuing a policy of neutrality. Until approximately 2010, when the uh, Russian subversion and destabilization campaign began, as was discussed at length in um, our last podcast, and finally bringing us to the um, current terrifying juncture. So here we are. All right, a few closing things to say in this whole comparison of uh, Makhno and Bandera. First. Uh, It has to be emphasized, of course, Makhno was not a Ukrainian nationalist, despite the fact that he had the, uh, you know, he led the Revolutionary Insurgent Army of Ukraine. He was opposed to all nationalism, including Ukrainian nationalism. And he seems to be largely forgotten in Ukraine today, while there is something of a personality cult around Stepan Bandera. And rather than, you know, jumping on that fact, the fact of that personality cult, and exploiting it as anti-Ukrainian propaganda, we should examine the reasons why. Now, the world is a complicated place, and there is no amount of Nazi collaboration which is forgivable. That said, there's something of a double standard around this question. Among the Palestinians today, there are many who favorably view Haj Amin al-Husseini the wartime Mufti of Jerusalem, who threw in his lot with the Nazis because they opposed the British and Palestine, and the contemporary leaders of Israel exploit this historical fact very much in the same manner that Putin exploits the historical fact of Stepan Bandera's wartime collaboration for propaganda purposes. So think about whose cynical tactics you're emulating. Similarly, Subhas Chandra Bose, the Indian independence fighter who threw in his lot with the Imperial Japanese during the Second World War because they opposed Britain in India, is today lionized by many in India for very similar reasons. And there are statues to him in India today, just as there are statues of Bandera in Ukraine. And finally, on the subject of double standards, let's not forget that Joseph Stalin himself was a Nazi collaborator, so to speak, between September 1939 and June 1941, during the period of the Hitler-Stalin non-aggression pact, during which the two dictators gobbled up Poland on mutually agreeable terms. And at this very grim moment for humanity, it is critical 
that we repudiate the calumny that any expression of Ukrainian identity or national aspiration is Nazism, and that we do not equivocate in recognizing that Ukraine has a right to survival, and that we recognize that the fascistic aggressor at this moment is Vladimir Putin. Now, the legacy of Makhno lives on in the shadows, as it were. There actually are anarchist groups in Ukraine today. I've been in touch with them. There's a group called the Autonomous Workers Union, which appears to be mostly based in Odessa, and a more newly formed group calling itself simply the Assembly, based in Kharkiv. And there actually does appear to be an incipient anarchist armed resistance against the Russians. The uh, anarchist think tank, as it were, (laughs) the group Crime Think, has a very interesting interview on their website with a group calling itself the Committee of Resistance in Kyiv. You can Google it up. Interview colon the Committee of Resistance Kyiv. Resistance, comma, K-Y-I-V. So please check it out. And I implore you, do something to loan some solidarity to the Ukrainians in their desperate resistance at this moment and to speak out loudly and forthrightly against Putin's criminal aggression. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where I blog daily about world affairs from an anarchist perspective. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join The Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.